From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Federal agencies should offer every employee, quote, maximum telework flexibilities because of the coronavirus outbreak. Guidance from the acting director of the Office of Management and Budget, Russ Vogt, says agency heads can have employees the agency needs to report to work do so. GovExec reports Vogt's memo says agencies should comply with the latest guidance from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Today's the first day of the Defense Department stop movement order because of the virus. Deputy Defense Secretary David Norquist says the ban covers DOD uniformed and civilian personnel and family members the department pays to transport. According to FCW, Norquist writes the ban will stay in effect until May 11th. The Pentagon's also close to unofficial visitors starting today. That ban includes guests of Defense Department personnel and contractors. FCW reports the Pentagon stopped giving public tours last Thursday. The Defense Department says it wants to, quote, take corrective action on the Joint Enterprise Defense Infrastructure contract. The agency's asked a judge for 120 days to look over the contract. Frank Kunkel is executive editor of NextGov. Frank, thanks very much for coming on, joining me by Skype. What do you see here in what the Pentagon has written to this judge about the JEDI contract? Well, uh, so it's been, uh, this is the latest twist. So last week, the DOD came in in a filing and said it wants more time. It, wait, it basically wants 120 days to go through some of the issues that Amazon Web Services identified in its bid protest. Now, this harkens back to a couple weeks ago, there was a filing that the judge came back when she granted the temporary restraining order or the halt on Jedi, which said that Microsoft and the DOD couldn't proceed further. Her unredacted uh, language for why sort of gets into the specifics of one, one clause that Amazon made, one argument um, about why this uh, contract was, was improperly evaluated. Now, if you look carefully at the footnotes of that decision, there are many other arguments that were not uh, addressed by the judge because they're so heavily technical. Also, recall that Amazon said that the president interfered politically in this process. That also wasn't addressed. So this um, particular bring back, if you will, the, the DOD saying it wants more time to take corrective action is only related to one specific issue. Um, certainly was eye-opening to me. That means a lot of the issues aren't even covered yet. It strikes me, Frank, that there are two possibilities here after I read your story and then went and read the supporting documents. Either one, the Pentagon thinks it might have gotten this wrong and it really is sincere about doing a redo, or two, it doesn't think it got it wrong. It thinks it got it right with the award to Microsoft, but it thinks this is the fastest way to dispose of this uh, protest process. Am I reading this right, or is there something else that's going on here, do you think? Francis, you're a smart man. That is exactly, those are the same things I was trying to figure out uh, when this came through, I think it was Friday, late Friday night. Um, my reading of it is that the DOD is trying to get this done in as much of an expedited fashion as it can. Here's why. Uh, if they go through this, I think what they thought was that Amazon's arguments were very compelling. Um, and they thought that if they did not address those issues, 
as rapidly as possible that they would probably lose the case. And if that happens, there's a lot of uncertainty about what the judge, what the Court of Federal Claims could actually decide. The judge has some leeway in these types of decisions, and we've seen uh, cases in the past where, you know, a, a contract can be entirely rebid. So imagine going back to 2017 when this started and saying, actually, start from the beginning. They could rebid a portion of the contract, but that doesn't seem that doesn't seem very rational to me because it was always intended to be a single award contract. So you can't really have both of the companies getting a share here, like like sometimes happens. Mm -hmm. I I think that the the main thing is yeah they want to do this faster and um, they're hoping that the 120 days might be enough to address these issues and then even if they lose on a technicality that it won't be as bad of a loss because again the judge will have some flexibility in what and what happens here. Uh, just a warning, Frank, that flattery will get you everywhere. Um, you write in this story, uh, the contract's been legally protested four times in the last two years. What's the marker traditionally that a contract like this undergoes before an agency just says, this is so mucked up that we kind of have to start over again? Well, this is, as far as I'm aware, it's, it's a very different type of contract. It's generated more controversy than almost any I can remember. Um, I don't know what the what the barometer is at the Pentagon now. There's There's been changes in leadership. I think three different changes in leadership since this initiative began. Um, you wonder what the appetite of some of the top executives is to, to pursue when, you know, in the Intel community, we've seen um, this mass shift to multi-cloud contracts. I think DOD always intended for Jedi to be sort of a starter for that in in the you know entirely. I mean I think they wanted to go multi-cloud. They say they're multi-cloud now. They want to go that way. Um, I don't know. You know if, the, if this case drags out another four months which is what the Pentagon is asking and AWS actually doesn't want that. They're actually disagreeing with that decision probably because they feel very confident where they're at right now. But push it out another four months. We're looking at, uh, let's see, we'll be mid-2020. This was initiative in mid-2017. So three years, is three years too long to get something that the Defense Department says it needs yesterday? I think probably. And so we, there's probably some decision decisions and some um, backups to those decisions being made right now. I don't see any other way around it. What are you going to track moving forward, Frank? What will be the markers that you'll look for in the next 30 to 60 days to see what happens next? Well, the, the big one will be, does the judge agree to this? And the, the answer is probably. They almost always do. When the agency opts to take corrective action, whether or not it's GAO or the Court of Federal Claims or any other court, they usually agree with that. Um, then I'll be watching for more uh, unredacted or unsealed filings that sort of tell the behind-the-scenes story. You know, when Amazon made this protest, they have a lot, of, they have six major technical arguments they say um, the DOD messed up on in evaluating. But they also have a huge chunk, dozens of pages allocated to remarks and perhaps communications the president made. Now, if those become a focal point again of the protests, the longer it drags out, I feel like there could be some really interesting sort of behind the scenes things in there. Um, and that's definitely what I'll be watching for the next 30 to 60 days. Frank, thanks as always. Appreciate having you on.
I'm probably happy to do it. Take care. Stay safe. Thank you. You too. Up next, uh, look at the coronavirus in the intelligence community. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what the IC knows and what it should know. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Back, the intelligence community is monitoring the outbreak of the coronavirus like lots of other federal agencies. Health intelligence is the specialty that tracks how disease outbreaks and other health events impact the U.S. and its allies. Ron Marks is president of ZPN National Security and Cyber Strategies, a former CIA official and former intelligence advisor to two Senate Majority Leaders. Ron, welcome back. Thank you, let's start by defining that term. What does health intelligence mean? What does it encompass, Ron? Well, it's, it's sort of funny. Guys. We're, we're sitting in the middle of this bio 9-11 right now, and I think people are scrambling a little bit. But there, there's always been a piece of the community. Uh, Defense Intelligence Agency has had uh, a national center uh, for medical intelligence over the years. Uh, that's followed and, and tracked reasonably well outbreaks overseas. Uh, Ebola, for instance, wasn't a good example of it. Uh, looking at health considerations. Uh, in different countries, trying to track uh, different uh, diseases and infections. So they're up at Fort Detrick. They've done a wonderful job over the years, but a very small unit. Uh, my understanding at this point is they've stepped in rather heavily right now, and they're briefing Capitol Hill, and they're, they're trying to brief the myriad of government agencies within the United States uh, that are dealing with this issue. But it, it's the kind of issue, you know, again, it's, it's a, it's a multi- national issue, uh, not unlike cyber, not unlike terrorism. Uh, it crosses borders. It doesn't necessarily stop at the, you know, at the U.S. lines here. Um, and, you know, they can cover so much, uh, but ultimately when it comes back into the United States, uh, they're having to deal with multiple agencies and trying to get that information through. Different kind of intelligence. It's been hinted at, Francis, for the last couple of years. Um, in the 2018 and 2019 uh, worldwide threat assessments uh, presented by uh, DNI Dan Coates, uh, he mentioned uh, that uh, those issues in both. Now, there's a certain amount of gee whiz we need to mention it, uh, but uh, you know clearly there have been concerns in the community for some time. Uh, but as you see from what's turning into a bio 9/11, the, the, the organization within the government was just wasn't prepared to to see it or frankly to deal with it. If it's a different kind of intelligence, is there a different kind of infrastructure or command structure necessary to exchange that information among the federal agencies that need to exchange that information, Ron? Well, one of the one of the issues here is what people can and cannot understand in terms of the information itself. Uh, you're certainly not going to have a dumb old case officer like me out collecting this information. I, you, you might, in the sense of I might be able to approach uh, some medical people in a given area and talk to them about it. You will have to have people, uh, you know, who are immunologists or experts in, uh, uh, in in diseases of one form or another. So it does require some expertise. And again, it's a question of reaching back 
into the government. Uh, all I can say right now is when you see uh, Vice President Pence at these press conferences, you'll notice he has about eight or nine people behind him. Uh, and that is a challenge of dealing with the domestic health issues here in the U.S., but also passing that information through. Uh, who gets it? How do they get it? Do they understand it? I'm sure we're back in clearance problems again. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know whether they've reached out to fusion centers at this point, but I suppose that's another factor. Um, it's, it's messy. It requires expertise, of which I am not sure that we have an enormous amount, but I do know it's there, and I do know it's been nurtured over the years, and bless old DIA for hanging on to it. I think there was some question within DOD over the years as to where it should be. As soon as you start talking about health information, Ron, the privacy uh, advocates get really excited and not necessarily in a good way, especially, I imagine, when you start to talk about the IC being involved. What does that look like in an intelligence community environment, the, the privacy issue? Well, I think it's, I think it's a tough one. Uh, you know, again, it, the intelligence community can focus overseas. Uh, but frankly, with uh, with Homeland Security, you know, reaching out to the various fusion centers, for instance, hundred and some odd of those, you know, they're dealing with privacy issues constantly. It, it's sticky, especially on the medical side. Uh, I'm not sure now is the time that people are going to be arguing too much over it. Uh, there are not a lot of atheists in foxholes. Uh, but nevertheless, it is a concern. We've certainly had break-ins in both the public and private sector at this point for uh, various medical information. So we know that from a cyber standpoint, it's not necessarily secure. Um, on the flip side of it, they, they need it. Uh, you know, I think, I think one of the issues right now, Francis, is we just don't simply have sufficient data in the United States to make judgments. Um, a lot of organizations collecting a lot of information. CDC is overwhelmed and trying to get this all together. Technically, that is one of their jobs. Uh, FEMA has now stepped in uh, for the president and the International Emergency Act. Um, you know, where you're reporting, how you're getting it, uh, who's reporting it? Uh, you know, what, what kind of information are you getting from people? Are, are they reporting it to the doctor? Are they reporting it to the hospital? Are those guys reporting up the line? It's, it's self-reporting. Uh, someone was joking to me the other day, you know, is it, is it feel something, say something? Uh, at this point in time, I'm not sure what that is. And that really hasn't been made clear. So we're dealing with incomplete information. So you may have some good stuff coming in at this point, but when it comes to the, to the central issue of what's going on within the U.S., I'm not sure we have a good handle at this point. This intelligence has not focused internally before. Uh, so I think we're gonna have some, uh, some challenges here going forward. Ron Marks, thanks very much as always. It's great to have your insight, I appreciate it. Thank you, Francis, stay safe. You too. Our coverage of the impact of the coronavirus on the federal marketplace continues at 8 and 11 every night this week on WJLA 24-7 News. We want to hear from you. You can email us your questions to info at govmatters.tv or tweet us at govmatters.tv. Up next, how the pandemic will hit the contracting community. Straight ahead on Government Matters, who's providing guidance and how contractors should know if it's time to telework. Straight ahead on WJLA 24-7 News. Federal agencies have guidance now on how to prepare federal employees for telework and other provisions to keep agencies going. Contractors, though, do not have the same unity of voice. David Berteau's president and CEO of the Professional Services Council, former Assistant Secretary of Defense for Logistics and Material Readiness. Dave, welcome back. It's good to have you. This is something that is unplowed territory in one respect and is something we've dealt with kind of 
the stopping and starting potentially before. What's the biggest challenge for companies in dealing with all of the issues surrounding this coronavirus? So, Francis, thank you. You know, we have many of our members at, at PSC are asking us every day, you know, what's the guidance? What's the government planning here? What, what do contractors have to do to prepare for this? As you noted, you know, there's guidance out there for federal civilian workers, but we have a blended workforce mm -hmm. in every agency, in every department, in every activity, right? And you have contractors working side by side. Those contractors, up to now, the guidance has been inadequate, often non-existent, and inconsistent. And so you have uh, each contractor has to respond to the terms and conditions of their contract. So the issues can range from my contract won't actually let me telework. I have to be in the facility mm -hmm. on the equipment, right? I don't even have arrangements for that. To I don't know what your contract will let you do, and I particularly don't know what costs you can get reimbursed for. You can even have two individuals working for the same company side by side, but on two different contracts mm -hmm. that could conceivably get two different types of guidance or zero guidance in both cases. And it strikes me the biggest challenge here is that we might not know what we don't know. Well, I mean, we might not be aware of all of the different possibilities because of the differentiations from contract to contract. That's true. We've been raising with the agencies uh, themselves, the individual agencies, and also with the Office of Management and Budget and the Office of Federal Procurement Policy, the need for both better policy guidance Obviously, you have to have flexibility. You, you don't want to take the warrant out of the contracting officer's hands. You want to continue that authority. It's essential to survival of, of our system. But you also have to have better communications as that goes. And I think both of those have to go hand in hand. It doesn't do any good to communicate if you don't have any central guidance, if you don't have any central activity that you want to central, uh, get communications out on that. So the cart has to come after the horse. Yeah. It's what are your plans? And frankly, we're seeing some agencies do very well at this. Uh, for instance, the uh, Center for Disease Control recently said, we're going to do a telework exercise that involves both our federal civilian workers and our contracts in a unified effort. Mm -hmm. Now, CDC is not a large organization, and they're clearly at the middle of thinking about this, yes. right? One so would this hope. Is, this is, one would hope. So this is an important element. But every agency should be doing this, you know. As other guests have said to you, the planning is important, but the testing and the execution is even of greater importance than that. What would be the best thing that someone in, whether it's Congress or the executive branch, right. particular agencies, OMB you referenced earlier, what's the best thing that somebody could do to give the vendor community more certainty, not certainty, but more certainty about what comes next? So I think central guidance could come out of the Office of Federal Procurement Policy and then issued by the agencies enacting that. They would have three key elements to it. Number one is a recognition that we've got to incorporate contractors into the planning at every stage, at every phase, for every task, right? The second is that where contracts permit it, you don't need to make any changes, but where they don't, have a streamlined process and guidance that says to the contracting officers, you not only have the authority to make the changes so that you can have that combined execution across the federal government, you have the responsibility to make that change. Mm -hmm. And don't worry too much about what it complies with. Here's the exceptions that we tell you you can use in that circumstances. Mm -hmm. That kind of guidance could be written and issued very shortly. The implementation can still be left up to the individual circumstances of the contracts and the contracting officers. Companies also need to have a voice in this process, right? And so the question of whether or not what the vehicle is for companies to raise these issues, obviously as a trade association representing them, we hope they'll bring those issues to us. We can have that communication. We've had good responses from some of the agencies. Yes, you've raised important issues. Mm -hmm. Yes, we need to wrestle with the question. Let's collaborate 
collaborate and cooperate as we go forward here. The problem is the speed of change is so rapid that yesterday's guidance may not be relevant to today. So you've got to have that broad structure. It strikes me that you told me before we went on the air that you are getting calls from your members. And it strikes me that you mentioned they're asking you, what do you think we should do? not saying, here's what we're going to do. What do you think the reason for that is, Dave? Well, companies, of course, are responsible for their workers, mm -hmm. and they are taking very seriously that responsibility. But they can only execute the part of that that's not constrained by the contract. Mm -hmm. What we often find is that the government's not as familiar with the terms and conditions of its own contracts as the companies are. And so compliance is a big deal. But we have to get beyond compliance to actual getting the work done and, and supporting the missions and activities of the federal government. I think that's what our members are concerned about. They care about their employees, but they also care about their job, the mission that they're doing for the government. And both of those have to come into play. I have, we have about a minute left. I've compared this on the program before to the, the various lapses in appropriation shutdowns. You alluded to that earlier in our conversation. At the end, because eventually this will end, right. we'll get a vaccine or something will happen. Right. What does that look like in your view in the relationship between vendor and agency? The hard thing, as you point out, is once it's over, how do you actually say, don't forget about it, yeah. take the lessons you've learned, incorporate them into policy, et cetera. That's partly our responsibility as a trade association. We did that after the last shutdown. We caught all the lessons learned. We shipped them off in a document to OMB in the Office of Federal Procurement Policy, said, here's what you can do to implement this. Then it's up to the government, actually, to take that implementation seriously. We bird dog them, of course, to make sure they're still paying attention. Uh, 20 seconds left, Dave. What's the most important thing that you think should be in that in that message that you send up? I think the most important thing is the relationship between the contractors and the federal civilian employees to keep the government going, to get the missions done, to make sure that the citizens of America are served in the proper way. David Berteau, thanks as always, my friend. Thank you. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now stay on top of all things that matter to the business of government anywhere, anytime. Subscribe to the Government Matters podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at GovMattersTV. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.